You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. All right, everybody, we have come to the end of our series in the, in the uh, eighth chapter of Romans. And, um, and so we've come to the end of one of my favorite series that we've ever done. Uh, I, 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 I'm just hopeful that you have got even a little bit um, of, the, of the, uh, the blessing that I've got from studying this chapter and working through it over eight weeks. Uh, we come to the end of this chapter, we come to the end of this section um, that began in verse 28 with the promise that all things work for the good of those who love God and accord according to his purpose. And that ends in verse 39 with the promise that no things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so there is so much here to um, bolster our sense of assurance, uh, both of God's minute-by-minute sovereign providential care of us and his um, his his stone clad guarantee that um, that he will see us safely into glory now this assurance that Paul really wants us to have that's the kind of meta theme of this whole chapter really of chapters five through to eight that meta theme of assurance of um, being able to rest in God's promises is um, all of it is um, made possible by God's superintention of our salvation from from eternity past to eternity future. We saw this a couple of weeks ago uh, when we looked at what is called the golden chain of salvation. Um, you know, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Even those, that thing which is yet to happen, the glorification of creation itself is guaranteed. It's as if it's already happened. And that, that is what's referred to as, as the golden chain of salvation. But I was thinking about it this last week, and I think... Um, we need, I think I would like to make a pretty crucial adjustment to that because that, that kind of language, that golden chain language, came out of modernity. It came out of 19th, 20th century where Western civilization was just obsessed with machines. This was the Industrial Revolution. This was, this was where machines come to the forefront. We, we, we have this to this day. We, we absolutely are obsessed by devices. It was the same then, but for them it was new, and so they were just fully obsessed by machines and machinery. And so this, that kind of language um, infiltrated Christian theology to the extent that you sort of you, you could be forgiven for thinking that this this golden chain thing is itself a machine that the process of salvation is is some kind of mechanical force that God winds up in eternity past and lets run and what you end up with is this very kind of deistic view of God which is probably one of the the main ways that um, pe- people 
who, who, who are kind of nominally Christian think about God. Yeah, he's out there somewhere. He's, he's, the, he's the big guy in the sky that I can call out to if I need help, right? This, this, this God that sets the machinery of the world into process and then takes off and, 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 and one day we might see him again sometime. That, that, that what that does is gives us a very cold, mechanical view of everything that Paul's been talking about. It's gears and levers and, and, and chains. And, and, and that's not the picture we ought to have if we've been paying attention to what Paul's been talking about. And so I've, I've edited our golden chain to be, um, to be a kind of love I don't know. I don't know. Wait, someone come up with something better than a, a love chain of salvation. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, but, but this is the point, right? That like this whole thing, this whole process by which we are saved, Paul goes over and over and over again to te- out of his way to tell us that this is all governed by love. It's all saturated in love. It's all held together by the love of God. In love he predestined us, he says in Ephesians. So love is what weds all of this together and, and, and it's the love of God that reassures us that all things are going to work for our good, that, 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 that those he predestined he is also going to glorify, that nothing can separate us from his loving presence. And so Paul wants us to be 100% assured of this love, this unbreakable chain of love. And so he asks, he sort of puts it to the test in, in this passage we're going to look at this morning. He asks the question, verse 35a, who can separate us from the love of Christ? This love that he's been talking about that holds the universe together, who can separate us from it? You know, sometimes we have asked the question either in a sort of theoretical, theological sense or just out of the depths of our own painful experience. Sometimes we ask the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? I think a better question to ask is, can God lose a Christian? If you take the sweep of what Paul has been saying here in Romans chapter 8 and you understand and remember that, that he is absolutely putting all of the responsibility for everything in the universe on God's shoulders, then the better question to ask is, can God lose a Christian? It's something actually that Jesus addressed in his earthly ministry so in john chapter 6 this is how he speaks of his ministry of of taking hold and keeping hold he says everyone the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will never cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me this is the will of him who sent me that I should not that I should lose none of those he has given me 
but should raise them up on the last day. That's the golden chain of salvation. He says something similar in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus emphatically answers this question. Who can separate me from the love of God? Well, actually, anyone who can overpower God. Anyone who can snatch me out of God's hand Paul's point is the same as Jesus. The answer to that question, who can snatch anyone out of God's hand, is no one. There is no contest. God has no rivals. So Paul stands on this real, like this solid foundation from Jesus. Jesus' own teaching, Jesus' own guarantees. He stands on that foundation and he throws down a challenge to all comers. He's like, let's look at the universe. Who's up to the challenge? Who's going to step up to God and snatch anyone, anyone out of his hand? Who's going to force open God's grip? Verse 35, let's read it again in full. He says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of these things force God to lose his grip? That's the question. Here's why I'm interested in Paul asking this question. I'm interested in this question, beca- this question because it's asked by him. This is not a question being asked theoretically by some soft ivory tower theologian completely removed from the world insulated, coddled. This is not some theoretical question. This is the Apostle Paul asking the question. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, these are things that he has experienced. I tell you what, I'm not interested in talking to anyone about real world suffering who hasn't actually suffered. It's all just philosophy, it's theory, it's meaningless. I went and saw a psychologist this past week. Started seeing a new psychologist trying to sort out some stuff that that I'm struggling with. And he said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yes. Have you experienced any of this stuff? Because 
if he hasn't, then he can't help me. It's all just theory. Paul poses the question, carrying in his body the scars of suffering. Paul can, is someone who can engage me in this question because he walks with a limp. If you remember last year when we were working through 2 Corinthians, you got this like litany of sufferings that he talks about in chapter 11. And this is not an exhaustive list. When he's being confronted with the challenge of these false teachers, these super apostles, these guys who are undermining him and trying to get the Corinthians to walk away from the truth of the gospel, he lays down his credentials by revealing his scars. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. He goes on. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. So here's a guy who can talk to me about suffering. Here's a guy who can talk to me about the major threat to my security. The security of my salvation. Here's a guy with scars He knows what it is to suffer. In fact, he quotes the Psalms which speak of the sufferings of the people of God. So in verse 36, he says, As it is written, Psalm, 42, uh, Psalm 44, verse 22, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. That Psalm, Psalm 44, is addressing God And the people of God are saying, because of you, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. The truth of that psalm and the truth that Paul echoes is that this is is not suffering experience because we're doing something wrong. We're, We're not reaping what we've sown in sin and rebellion. This is suffering that is occurring for righteousness. Because of faithfulness, because of you, Lord, because of faithfulness to you, we are being put to death all day long, like little lambs to the slaughter. That's why Paul quotes that psalm, that 
Psalm 44, verse 22. That's why he's quoting it, because he knows that Christians are going to suffer for faithfulness. God's people always have. This is part and parcel of being God's people in the now and not yet. In a creation shot through with futility and groaning, this is what it means to be a Christian. Don't let anyone sell you that lie. Become a Christian and life will just be so much better. You'll walk between the raindrops. It'll all be health and wealth and prosperity. It's never been the case. It never will be the case. You get this in Hebrews chapter 11. You got this, this, this um, passage in Hebrews 11. It's called the, the roll call of faith. And it's where the writer of the Hebrews just kind of walks through old covenant history and he talks about the heroes of the faith. He talks, you know, all the classics that come to mind through Old Testament history and he talks about how they triumphed. And then he does this like switch thing. He pulls the rug right from underneath us because he switches seamlessly from those who triumphed through faith to those who suffered through faith. He says this, women received back their dead, raised to life again, and then the rug gets pulled out. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And he goes on to say, all these were approved by faith. So, Christians triumph over suffering, not by avoiding it. We need to get that out of our mind and out of our expectations. So much of our frustration with God is born out of this sense that we should not be suffering. Christians triumph over suffering not by avoiding it or being kept free from it, but by persevering through it as we walk in the footsteps of a suffering Saviour. Paul said as much in, remember back in verse 16 to 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That's the path of a faithful Christian. We follow a suffering servant. 
We follow a Savior who suffered in our place and then was granted glorification, dominion. And we walk in the very same footsteps through suffering to glorification and dominion. Suffering will give way. I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us, verse 18. And verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through all these things. What things? Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword being put to death all day long, sheep to be slaughtered. In all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now here's how we've undermined this verse and cheapened it and, and, and washed out all the vibrant color, turned it into a, a, a black and white imitation, low res. We've done it by extracting it right out of the context and making it all about me. We've turned it into inspo. This is what, let's, pictures like this. Man on top of mountain. (laughs) We love that stuff. Particularly in the West. We love the self-made man. We love the underdog who overcomes. Man on mountain. All these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we are more than conquerors. You can kind of get away with it, particularly if you leave off that last couple of words about him. But You can kind of get away from it if you extract it out of the context. You have to extract it out of the context because the whole chapter has been telling us that it's all about God's power in spite of our weakness. The inspirational poster gives us the wrong picture. When we do that, it's like I... This is the image that comes to mind. If you've got kids, you'll know what this is like. Um, when, you, when you're teaching your kids how to do the monkey bars at the playground, when they're first starting off, I mean, they've got these tiny little chicken wings. They can hardly hang on to your hand, let alone, you know, like hang off the monkey bars and make their way across it. And so what do you do as a daddy or a mummy? You pick them up and hold them as they make their way across. That, you do that for them and they get to the other side and feel like they're on top of the world, man on mountain. I'm more than a conqueror. But the, the reality is that if you let go for even the smallest part of a second, they would go crashing to the ground. And so it is with us. Yes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if that love, if that constant attention was broken for even the smallest part of a second, we'd go crashing, not to the ground, but to hell forever. So just keep that in mind when you feel like you're standing on top of the mountain with your hands raised 
the glory does not belong to you. There's this really old hymn that summarizes it quite poetically. It's by John Campbell Sharp, and uh, this is what he says. Let me no more my comfort draw from my fail, frail grasp of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. If you're lacking assurance, it's probably because you've been getting this small comfort from your fail, frail, failing, frail grasp of God. There is small comfort in the measure of my capacity to hang on. When I think about, like, listen, listen if, I, if I meditate on my fickle, failing capacity to hang on to God in the best of times, never mind the dark nights of the soul, then all that that can produce in me is not assurance, but anxiety. I have much to fear. But if I consider the fact that the God who, who toys with supernovas creates supermassive black holes, that that God is with me, walking with me, praying for me, has promised never to leave me or forsake me, then I can have assurance. Then I can rest. Then I can say with the apostle, verse 37 to 39, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. will always love us. For I am persuaded, that's a weak translation, it's not persuaded, it's not like, oh yeah, I think I've come around to, no, it's convinced, absolutely convinced. It's in the core of my being, he says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, depth, nor anything. No thing. will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if that's true, then bring it on. Bring it on. Whatever life throws at me, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, whatever comes my way, if this is true, that Jesus will never leave me, 
that no one can snatch me out of his hand, that his love is a never-ending stream that saturates every minute, every second, every breath through my life from beginning to end. If all of that's true, then bring it. Whatever it is. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things right now, things yet to be, powers, height, depth, anything. Anything. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul's great desire in Romans chapter 8 was to so paint a picture of God's power and love. His greatness and goodness that we would be able to rest assured of his never-ending love. The inseparable love of God. So I hope you've been assured and reassured through this time that we've spent in this chapter. I want to leave it to my... (laughs) I was going to say my good friend. Never met him. One day I'll meet him. Um, Leave it to John Stott just to summarise particularly this last section that we've been working through, verse 28 through to 39. He says, Here then are five convictions about God's providence, in verse 28, five affirmations about his purpose, 29 to 30, and five questions about his love, 31 to 39, which together bring us 15 assurances about him. We urgently need them today since nothing seems stable in our world any longer. You got that right. Insecurity is written across all human experience. Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation or tragedy, but we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, these eight weeks that we've spent in the most glorious chapter in literature. We thank you, Lord, for preserving these words against all odds, preserving them for us. We thank you for the free access we have to these words. And I pray, Lord, 
that you would do as you've always done. Work powerfully through them. Speak into our very hearts by the double-edged sword of your word. Cleave away insecurity, misplaced security, fear and anxiety, pride and triumphalism. And reassert in our hearts a deep trust in you in your plans and your promises that cannot be thwarted. In your power and your love, your greatness and your goodness, in your beautiful and glorious plan of salvation that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Strengthen us. We believe. Please help our unbelief. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.